I'm Canon John DeNero, and this is Frankly, a podcast that was launched as the COVID-19 pandemic at the U.S. We record Frankly via Zoom in downtown Brooklyn at St. Anne and the Holy Trinity Church, the pro-cathedral of the Episcopal Diocese of Long Island, where I'm rector. St. Anne's is at the corner of Clinton and Montague Streets in Brooklyn Heights, and I sometimes call this the crossroads of everywhere. The conversations in this podcast take place at the intersection of faith and culture where we seek to serve. Frankly, is inspired by the legacy of St. Francis of Assisi, who was a peacemaker, justice seeker, and lover of all creation. Francis is believed to have said, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. We believe that navigating the challenges of our time will require words of wisdom from a wide range of smart and caring people offering straight talk from the heart. Welcome to Frankly. My guest today is Bishop R. William Franklin, better known as Bishop Bill. And today's episode of Frankly is called The Relevance of Rituals. Bishop Bill, before we launch into our conversation, which I'm really looking forward to, uh, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself, just to say something about who you are. Well, I'm uh, Bishop William Franklin. I'm an assisting bishop in Long Island. And before starting this job a year ago, I was the diocesan bishop of uh, the Diocese of Western New York. I've been a seminary dean, a professor, and a priest. And it's been wonderful to be part of the life of the pro-cathedral in Brooklyn uh, during these months. And I appreciate very much the invitation from Canon Denaro to be here to talk about the pandemic and religion. That's, it's so great to have you. Um, our conversation and friendship started before the pandemic. Uh, this moment uh, culturally and for the church has really broken things open in terms of the conversation we were already having. Um, what we have been talking about uh, that led us to this podcast conversation is how having been thwarted in our in-person <laughs> traditions of gathering for church, how we've been forced to move our worship to online platforms. What sort of really got us going was a recent article in the New York Times by Tara Isabella Burton, uh, which I've heard called the future of Christianity's punk and also Christianity gets weird. And I wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind getting to some of the issues she brings up and, and, and how they speak to you or don't. Well, first of all, I was grateful that the New York times uh, published uh, a two page article in the Sunday times a week ago uh, on this whole question of religion and the pandemic and Tara Burton has a big online presence uh, as, as somebody who does a lot of tweeting about religion. And she has a book uh, coming out called Strange Rights. And that's what she's basically talking about in this article, that the pandemic and the closing of churches has created this revival of online uh, worship, which we're engaged in in our own diocese. And she's been particularly attracted to traditional liturgical worship online. And she likes very much this image of a single priest with lots of vestments and incense 
all by himself or herself celebrating the Holy Eucharist alone. And so that's why we're talking about in this conversation, this title of the conversation is Rich Ritual and the Pandemic. Why might that be attracted to people? But she also connects this to punk, <laughs> that this is kind of weird and this is unusual and new. I'm old enough to remember when punk actually meant the Sex Pistols, so I'm a little bit uh, put off by the fact that she's comparing us to the Sex Pistols. Well, I think she means countercultural, though, right? I, I mean, she does mean that, and I know that, and it means being against the man and being a kind of individual and being very individualistic. And I think that's what she's trying to say in this article: that online worship is something that connects the individual to the transcendent and old-fashioned forms of worship, the liturgy and Gregorian chant and incense and weirdness, somehow weirdness that is part of our Christian heritage definitely is connecting her to the transcendent. And particularly the Eucharist is doing this, even though it's celebrated by one person and nobody's receiving communion, and that's weird, I think, that she's saying this. <laughs> this has raised a number of questions for me. First of all, uh, her emphasis on the individual, liturgy, the Greek word liturgy means the work of the people. In our tradition, the Episcopal Anglican tradition, we've always believed that this is something that people do together. And this has been the problem of our moment. How do you do a Eucharist together? She likes being by herself with one priest doing the Eucharist together. So I have a problem with that. The second thing I have a problem with is that she makes the argument that all oh, this great upheaval of the pandemic is doing something new. We're discovering liturgical worship for the first time. That's not true. <laughs> The history of the Christian church is full of crises, as bad as ours, creating two rediscoveries of the liturgy, of worship. Mm. St. Benedict, she talks a lot about St. Benedict. St. Benedict founded Benedictine monasticism because of the fall of Rome and the collapse of the whole culture of the Roman Empire. He did something new. He built a community, by the way. He didn't do it as an individual. Mm. And the focus of that community life was on the liturgy, which led to creating kind of a space for God's kingdom. In the Reformation, the same thing happened. It was a huge political upheaval. And our tradition, the Church of England, Anglicanism, rediscovered again common worship. That's why our worship book is called the Book of Common Prayer. But it was liturgy yeah. or a community. In the 18th century, the Industrial Revolution, John Wesley, rediscovered community, and created the evangelical movement, which many people forget was liturgical. Mm. Above all, I want to stress today, in our Episcopal tradition and the Church of England, in the 19th century, in the midst of the Industrial Revolution and secularization, the Oxford movement, which was the revival of Catholicism within our tradition, our Episcopal language, was exactly the thing that we should do. They went back to weird rituals in the past, but they said these rituals unlock the door to experiencing the transcendent. But they also said something that she's not talking about. 
they connect to social justice. Mm. Ritual and social justice mm. are connected. So I hope she'll listen to this podcast someday and <laughs> when she publishes her book, go back and say that this is, it's not that she's wrong about this, but that there's a long, long Christian experience of rediscovering liturgical worship for community in times of cultural strife and change. Mm-hmm. I, I think some of the tension is around uh, the Eucharist in particular, um, this idea, you know, and then the tension, I think, with what she's saying and that uh, reality of like Eucharist is central to our self-understanding and our piety, you know, on the one hand, she's experiencing it digitally. Right. On the other hand, we think of it as a very tactile, Absolutely. very um, personal, interpersonal experience. Um, we're prohibited from that interpersonal experience and that in-person experience. And, and it, I think it, 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 I think you have, and I, we've talked about resolving that tension in some ways. Um, but I, I, I would love to ask you to speak about Eucharistic theology that I think does give us a much broader sense of what it means to be Eucharistic people, Eucharistic centered people. Um, that might yes. free us from some of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, claims she's making. Yes. Well, there's, it's interesting that just yesterday, another uh, online article came out by Diana Butler-Bass, an Episcopal lay theologian, about we should allow virtual Eucharist. But I think I can speak for the bishops of the Episcopal Church to say that we are not in favor of this because the Eucharist, again, is something done by a community. And it's a strong belief in our tradition that a priest or a bishop, an ordained person, must preside over this with a community present. An Episcopal priest cannot celebrate the Eucharist by himself or herself. And we believe that Jesus Christ is truly present in this, but Christ is present in the bread and the wine, but also in the community gathered. So it has to be the double work of priest and people, a community. There has to be touch. We are an incarnational religion, meaning we believe that you've got to touch people. You've got to touch this bread and wine. And an ordained person needs to do it. But the ordained person needs to be having a community. And all of this is being betrayed. Our tradition is being turned upside down by this call for a virtual Eucharist. So I think that what's happened in our church is that people have rediscovered uh, liturgies of the Word, a uh, morning prayer, in which I know the Pro Cathedral, our cathedral in Garden City, large, large numbers of people. We're having a new Zoom church, which has been created. And I'm one of those people who's been attracted to these services of the Word. I'm a very Eucharistic person. I haven't celebrated the Eucharist since the end of February, but my soul has been fed. Mm. And I think that the Pro Cathedral is so poised now to be able to respond to how does it create in this new culture a a multivalent, a multiple Christian response to the challenge of the pandemic. Can I tell you something of my thoughts about the Pro Cathedral? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I'm going to ask you about um, the tradition, uh, the Episcopal tradition that you referred to. um, and, And so 
but let's continue with your um, focus on the on the pro-cathedral. Well, I think that um, the pro-cathedral doesn't have an either-or history. It's not a binary church. Uh, a friend of mine, the theologian Patrick Chain, called it a rainbow church. Mm. It's a church that's a combination of a variety of Christian traditions, some in which the Eucharist were important, some were not. In the early 19th century, St. Anne's part of the Procathedral was the center of the evangelical movement, which was about building community in the industrial city, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. through prayer meetings, through the whole community gathering, not for a Eucharist, but for prayer. Then in 1844, the Holy Trinity was begun. It was very much influenced by the Atra movement that I talked about, a great Gothic building, the first figural stained glass in America, making worship an aesthetic experience in which you were transformed. Just what Tara Burton is talking about, the cathedral, pro-cathedral, knows how to do this in space. It has one of the greatest organs that was built in New York City, music, art, building, soaring, aesthetic experience bringing you to the transcendent, but it connected this to action. And Tara Burton never talks about what the, she doesn't talk about loving God or loving neighbor as an experience you have of the Eucharist. This is part of our tradition that worship brings us closer to the kingdom of God. And the Crow Cathedral has a great tradition of progressive Christianity from the 19th century, social justice. It has a fascinating period under clergy father and son, the Mellishes, who were accused by Joseph McCarthy of, of being communists because they were for civil rights when nobody was. They were for justice to immigrants. So here you have this wonderful building which leads to transcendent experience, which knows how to make it into action. I think it's perfectly poised now to be this rainbow space in the new time. But Number one, because it's big enough people can spread out. <laughs> you can have six feet apart mm-hmm. and still gather a congregation mm-hmm. in this glorious transcendent space. But it also has an online presence. So how can this great space be uh, connected to online? It already is doing both social justice teaching and liturgical worship. So everything that I think we need for, for this response to the pandemic is already present in your DNA and what you're doing. And the other thing, you are in the heart of the epicenter of the pandemic. Just as cathedrals in the past were in the midst of huge social change. Think of Notre Dame. Think of a movie like The Unchback of Notre Dame is about Notre Dame as the center of revolutionary change. So are you in Brooklyn. And you're at a center of young people. And I've talked to a number of my millennial age students, uh, both at the Mercer School in Long Island and EDS at Union in Manhattan, and they've said the attraction of the Episcopal Church is its powerful liturgy. People of our age want to be a part of these experiences, but we also want to be a part of action. So you're already doing this. You've got the stage set, if I may say this. Well, I appreciate that so much, and you have... Um elucidated, you know, the, 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 the point about the DNA of both of the congregations and parishes that, that are kind of in our uh, sort of history as a, a parish now. But we, we've struggled like 
many uh, communities and we're really just still, even as we start to think about sort of uh, this reopening possibility, you know, as you just said uh, a moment ago, we're going to be both and, you know, we have this um, great big space and we can accommodate people safely, but many will uh, be reticent to return and we will, um, we've learned that the online liturgies and other gatherings that we've been organizing are, they're powerful ways to be connected. And I think it's going to be a balancing act. Um, also, in terms of social action, there's going to continue to be restrictions and limitations. Um, and I think both in person and online, part of our social action will be moving with people as we're able, <laughs> um, accompanying them, um, both the grieving and the extremely needy. I mean, there's, so, there's such a range of need that will persist um, in the wake of this terrible tragedy that, you know, we've kind of, uh, we haven't, we've barely begun to experience. Uh, but, but I, you know, I, I, I just acknowledge that because it really is here in our DNA, as you say, but we're having to learn <laughs> to respond in a very particular context. Yes. But you, you always responded in the past. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, even we talk about the Mellish is responding to McCarthy. That's not unlike our situation right now in some ways. Uh, when we talk about th this great space in the city where people of all classes gather to listen to beautiful music and to look at the great stained glass. And I think a gift that you have is your space, how you will regulate the space. Maybe only four people come in at a time, but to somehow open the pro-cathedral because every time I walk into that space, I'm an old timer. I'm, I feel in touch with the transcendent. And that is the mission of cathedrals. They have been soaring spaces that give people freedom to come in and connect in whatever way they can with this transcendent that we name as God, that we name as Jesus Christ. But you don't put a long theological statement. <laughs> you must believe this to come in. Right. But yet you can change people, I think, by what you have. And it's a great opportunity. I'm not, it's going to be hard. We know it's going to be hard. But you have a gift. And you, I think you're, you're already sharing it. You have an experience of doing this. Um, so you can look at, I see you as a response to Tara Burton. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think you say, look, you've opened the door for a lot of people to be thinking about things. And invite her to come and speak. Mm -hmm. I mean, why not? Maybe she and I could have a debate. That would be awesome. And that could happen in person or online. So let's see about that. You just, okay. uh, you just uh, inspired me. Well, let, let's, as we sort of, um, you know, come not quite yet to a close, but start to think about drawing these uh, things together. I want to ask about the thing you said about gathering all sorts of people. I feel like this has, we were already kind of, we were already committed to this space being a resource for the whole community, a community resource mm -hmm. uh, that didn't require you to show your ID as an Episcopalian right. or a Christian. Right. Right. And we are in the middle of everywhere. Uh, the, the downtown Brooklyn is, you know, a place of 
a rich array of, of humanity. And people travel here and uh, they, they feel about the spaces you do, not necessarily because they're Christian, but because they, right. Absolutely. You, know, the, the, you know, the, the sense of the sacred, the sense of, of the transcendent is, is, is something that touches everyone, uh, re- just, uh, um, you know, without regard to their, their, uh, personal, uh, uh, religious or not, you know, commitments. So can you just speak to that a little bit more yes. before we sort of slow down here and <laughs> come to a close? I, I just don't I, want to miss that. It's such no, no. a reality for us. So I think cathedrals in the past and even now are community spaces. They're civic spaces. They are the crossroads of the city. And you're a cathedral of the city, a pro-cathedral of the city. I think you've done that already. I mean, when you had the commemoration of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, that was a community giving thanks for something that had happened that was revolutionary and that brought greater humanity to the public life of our city and our nation. That's a perfect example of that. And I don't think you made people to have uh, their Christian-only credit card when they came in. (laughs) All are welcome to this. That is your mission, to think of more occasions like that, that commemorate the heroines and the heroes of the city, and that speak about human values, which must bind us together as we come out of this crisis. As the churches tried after the Civil War to do things to bind up the nation, we must not give up with our fellow, not only Christians, but the Jewish community, the Muslim community, what can we do to affirm our humanity? Again, that's in your DNA. So all you have to do is open that magic bottle and let all of these fumes come out of of what you've stood for in the past and to be adapted. So what can we do to affirm our humanity? Beautifully said and a great challenge. Uh, but a, I think one we can we can live into with great right. integrity here. Um, why don't we end with just a, an op? Why don't we just talk about how we employ our imaginations um, in this moment? And just to come back to the question of ritual right. and sort of both the limits and the opportunities that the notion of being a ritualistic or kind of centered in ritual. Um, provide? Well, I think the first thing you have to think about is once we're thinking in this diocese of July 1st, we can let some people come back into buildings. How how do you use online worship from your space with maybe some music, some singers, some, but you're wearing vestments. I mean, all the various things we do. I think you start need to think now, how do you use your, your, your artistic surrounding the stained glass and everything to go beyond, look at, well, the people listening can't see what we look like. <laughs> We're not, either one of us in a glorious space right now. Mm-hmm. But you do have a glorious space, I think. So how can you adapt? Also, listening to what we've learned about online worship, it's got to be short. But it's not entertainment. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is not having something that people watch. How can the experience of the building and the vestments and everything connected to this actual worship experience. And then the other thing is, how do you always allow that to point to action Mm -hmm. and to love of God? 
And so that the whole activity online is really a preaching of the gospel. And that's what we started with, St. Francis of Assisi. It's not just the sermon. It's the welcome. It's the beauty. It's your presence. All of these things contribute to this sense of sharing what we think is the good news of God uh, with our community in what is clearly a bad time. We've got good news for a difficult time, and that should give us hope. Amen. <laughs> Can I just do one last thing? Please. Name the, some of the people who helped me. Think about yes. My daughter Beatrice. it is due. Credit. My daughter Beatrice is a lawyer. Judy Stark, who is a great friend of mine. Uh, and, and three of my students, uh, Meredith Ward, Jacob Gonzalez, and Ethan Shera. They're all millennial. And uh, Meredith and uh, Jacob actually visited you and visited the Pro Cathedral. So I'm sharing some of the thoughts they have about how inspired they were about seeing what you're doing and seeing what this wonderful church can be like. So thank you very much for giving us all these experiences. Thank you. Thank you for uh, your generosity and acknowledging uh, the shared contribution uh, of your own um, participation in this, what's behind it. Um, thank you for your generosity and uh, continuing to invest in the possibilities here. Um, it means a lot to us. I can only, I, well, I speak for my whole parish in saying we're so glad that as you retired from the Diocese of Western New York, you found your way to the Diocese of Long Island. So am I. <laughs> Very thank, glad. Thank Very you, Bishop. Glad. And, and okay. here's to the, con the conversation continuing. Okay. God bless you. God bless. And God bless the Pro Cathedral. Bye-bye. <laughs>